Proverbs chapter 24 verses 1 and 2 teaches us to not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence, and their lips speak of troublemaking. Envy for individuals deemed evil seems like a strange concept. Yet some of our favorite stories involve the bad guy as the beloved character. Few cheered the downfall of Tony Soprano. Johnny Cash fully embraced his time in Fulton County Jail, and we have recently received a plethora of movies and shows that allow us to finally relate to the difficult life of Darth Vader. That last one hits a little personal for me, as my youngest children were introduced to Star Wars' Big Bad before ever hearing about the young man that he had been before he put on the fabled black helmet obscuring all of his defining features. For my children, Darth Vader was pure evil, which resulted in confusion for them when I said that we are going to get a chance to meet the Lord of Evil himself at Disney's Hollywood Studios. The pictures that emerged are great, but even better was the conversation that I overheard between my six-year-old twins, which settled upon the idea that if needed, we would just run Darth Vader over with our car. Many of Hollywood's best villains are modeled after real-life historical figures, ones whom we regularly confuse for heroes within their own stories. Julius Caesar was single-handedly responsible for the death of the Republic. Alexander spent his entire lifetime conquering and subjecting people to his will, while the German Martin Luther sparked a wave of anti-Semitic thought whose repercussions are still being felt 400 years later. Our near deification of the supposed great men of history often ignores their character flaws in order to place emphasis on the change that they brought to our world. Caesar's establishment of the glory of Western thought, Alexander's expansion of man's understanding of the world, and Luther's reformation of a Catholic church that had badly lost its way are all things to celebrate, but they all came at a dreadful cost. Unfortunately, that cost wasn't paid for equally, as those that decided to side with the villains got rich, enabling them to establish privilege that would be passed down for generations. Interestingly, envy is itself considered as a form of evil, one of the seven deadly sins. The Foundation for Economics Education notes that envy is almost as old as the world itself. It was Cain's motive for killing Abel. Professor Paul Fairfield of Queen's University in Ontario describes it as an animosity that eats away at you from the inside out and that hides itself behind a dubious morality. It comes in several shades. The less harmful version, for instance, is when you count the other guy's blessings instead of your own, but seek out the attainment of his or her achievements for yourself peacefully, by trade, or via emulating the decisions of those who are successful. A more malicious type of envy takes the form of despising someone for who they are or what they have. It also involves taking personal delight in punishing them for their success in the hope that you'll benefit in one way or another. 
I know of no moment in history in which the encouragement or practice of widespread envy produced anything but a negative outcome. The worst kind of envy shows up when you take action to make sure no one can ever possess what the successful person has because you believe equality in misery is more virtuous than inequality, period. The ultimate danger then comes in the form of an evil man who also suffers from extreme envy. Sociologist Helmut Schuck claims that the best way to identify such men is to look closely at their motives. Those that conduct the worst atrocities beneath the guise of humanitarian motives are those that he believes you ought to be the most wary of. Hernan Cortez's desire to become famous had resulted in his migration to the New World. He manipulated his way into a position of power before showing his true colors by hijacking his mentor's mission to the unexplored Yucatan Peninsula. There, he presented himself as the positive alternative to the notoriously violent Aztecs. He proclaimed to all that would listen that he was there to liberate, to bring civilization's marvels to the savages of the land, and to convert the residents to what he proclaimed to them to be the one true God. Five years after his arrival, the land of the Mexica people was in complete collapse. European diseases ravaged the land, claiming the lives of those who had managed to avoid the Spanish steel blades. Rather than elevating a new world, Cortes departed a land in utter ruin after successfully managing to line his own pockets with their gold. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the new world conquests of the conquistador Hernán Cortés. Episode number five, The Legacy of Cortés and the Fall of the Incas. After managing a dramatic escape from Tenochtitlan, Hernán Cortés put a plan into motion to ensure that no one would ever again witness the beauty of the Aztec's capital city. He spent five months recuperating among his Tlaxcan allies, during which time he gifted copious amounts of his ill-begotten gold to allies in Spain, Jamaica, and Hispaniola in order to buy him time. Once fresh soldiers arrived, the conquistador set about besieging the already devastated city. Cortes nearly died four times during this portion of the conquest. The threats varied in cause from nearly drowning after dikes had been purposefully destroyed by the enemy to an assassination attempt by his own men over the course of dinner. The siege of Tenochtitlan was ultimately successful due to the Spanish's ability to dismantle the 13 warships that most students today believe had been burned upon their arrival. 
courtesy of the labor of 8,000 indigenous allies, the ships and their ironworks were hauled deep into the new world's interior and diligently reassembled by the conquistadors' engineers. They launched the newly delivered fleet to the lakes surrounding the capital, courtesy of a man-made canal, dug, of course, by their local allies. It was a mile and a half long and 12 feet deep and broad. Cortez personally commanded the naval fleet, which was the equivalent of Godzilla fighting a fly. Spanish historian Frederick Ober describes the initial contact for us. A morning calm prevailed, and while the vessels lay inert, the war canoe swept forward with powerful strokes of the paddles, their crews yelling loudly in anticipation of victory. Suddenly the wind sprang up, the cannon, double-shotted, poured into the fleet their volleys of death, and the heavy brigantines plowed through the canoes, overturning and crushing all in their way. The surface of the lake was tinged with blood and covered with mangled remains, while very few of the Aztec canoes returned to the island city from which they had emerged. The preceding downfall of the Yucatan's resident bully swelled the indigenous alliance against them from 7,000 at the beginning of the siege to an incredible 200,000 by its end. Once the ships had arrived, it became clear for all that the tides had changed once and for all. Still, the Aztecs did not give in to their fate, fighting to the last man and at least, according to one historian, eating human flesh once their food stores ran out. Ober reveals that it was among the wretched populace in general, the innocent women and children, emaciated by famine and dying by degrees, thousands of them herded in a space sufficient for hundreds only, that the carnage was greatest. Though the inexorable warriors perished by thousands, at a signal given by the firing of a musket, Cortez let loose the ferocious allies who slaughtered in one day 8,000 of these half-starved and defenseless wretches, and in another 40,000. All who would have surrendered were butchered by the allies, while the warriors fought to a man until the heaps of slain were so high that the attacking savages could scarcely see over them. Thus it went on, day after day, blood flowing in streams, precious lives going out in agony, while the stubborn, indomitable king and his nobles retreated still farther into the corner of the city remaining to them, which had now become their prison and might be their tomb. The siege lasted for 93 days. By its end, the city of Tenochtitlan was destroyed. The soldiers celebrated their victory by boasting that they would buy horses with golden harness. The crossbowmen would use nothing but golden arrows. R were to have their fortunes made. For the moment, however, they found themselves possessed of little besides the armor they wore and the weapons they carried while some were in debt because of the associated fees that came with Toledo Steel. To their disappointment, the smoldering city did not reveal any treasures that weren't hidden in plain sight, and the fallen emperor could not be brought to reveal any storehouses that had yet to be discovered. 
As it turns out, they tortured the wrong individual, as it was Cortez who had been hiding the spoils. Less than a hundred crowns were given to each conquistador, while the ship laden with the king's share of one-fifth was secretly loaded up and sent across the Atlantic, only to be seized by a French corsair. Aubert provides the details, writing that, as fate would have it, the ship in which it was sent from Mexico was captured by a French corsair. When the king of France finally gazed upon this wonderful loot of a kingdom of which he had never heard, he is said to have sent word to Charles V that he would like to know by what authority he and the king of Portugal had divided the world between them without giving him a share, and that he desired to see the will of our father Adam to know if he had made them exclusively his heirs. For his success, Cortes was named governor and captain general of the Spanish territory that was now referred to as Mexico, as well as the moniker New Spain. It took two months, but the bodies of those slain in Tonotuitlan were removed, and Spanish settlers were soon granted land rights in an attempt to resettle the capital. They sent word of their victory to every tribe within the vicinity. Such correspondences meant that some of Cortez's men became the first ever Europeans to set their eyes upon the Pacific Ocean. The tribes that refused to shift their pre-existing tribute agreements, minus the inclusion of humans designed for sacrifice, were set upon and conquered. It was in these subsequent skirmishes that the Spanish soldiers found the gold that had eluded them thus far. Cortez had displaced the bully so that he could become the bully. Indeed, the same allies that had destroyed Tenochtitlan were now forced into rebuilding it. Although he certainly hadn't requested it, Cortez's perpetually neglected wife arrived to be with her despised husband. Although we don't have a first-hand source, it likely wasn't a happy reunion as he had been forced to marry her under duress after lying to her in order to round the proverbial bases. Three months reunited were all the couple would receive, as Cortez's wife officially died due to complications related to her asthma. But everyone believed that the governor had had her poisoned. Hers wasn't the only surprise fatality, as a handful of Cortez's unexpected guests suddenly passed from this world to the next after coming face to face with the Captain General. Velasquez, the man from whom Cortez had hijacked the entire conquest of Mexico, continued to work through his agents in Spain to have Hernan removed. But Cortez, in the words of Ober, submerged his enemies beneath a golden flood, the result of which was unrivaled power paired with a sufficient salary to maintain a splendid state. Confident in his authority, Cortes introduced the encomienda system, which officially brought feudalism to the shores of the New World. The system rewarded conquistadors via large plots of land stolen from the indigenous peoples. 
From there, the new Spanish landlords brought on local indigenous workers to produce their wealth. This system, which was merely degrees away from slavery, was publicly touted as benefiting the local population, as the Europeans were convinced that they were the only ones who could figure out how to make the land productive. Beneath their supposed benevolent rule, the quality of life for their indentured servants would be improved once the system was in place. The indigenous workers also received a mandatory education in Catholicism as well as the Spanish language. Landowners were also charged with the responsibility of protecting their workers from any and all violence. But don't let the propaganda fool you. This was the introduction of European-style slavery to the lands of Mexico. In fact, it was so obviously synonymous with the concept that Spain passed the absurdly named New Laws of 1542 to make it clear that the Encomida system was different from the peculiar institution. Unfortunately for the indigenous peoples of Central America, the introduction of the system by Cortes happened in 1521. In the two decades before reform came, the Encomida system wrecked havoc on the survivors of the clash of civilizations. Historian Timothy Yeager argues that the Encomida arrangement was deadlier than conventional slavery because of an individual laborer's life being disposable, as it was easy to replace the deceased with a laborer from the same plot of land. Historian Raphael Lemkin, who is the man who ultimately coined the term genocide, believed that the Encomida system was cultural genocide par excellence, noting that it is the most effective and thorough method of destroying culture or de-socializing human beings. Hernan's atrocities were the justification behind the decision for Spain to reform its laws. Las Casias a Dominican friar and contemporary in the new world of Cortes, wrote a thorough accounting of the conquistador's crimes against humanity. His concern for the native people appears genuine, as he explained that his intentions were to not see my country destroyed as a divine punishment for sins against the honor of God and the true faith. Professor Randall Loudmay claims that the friar's pleas was a petition for justice. While not focused solely on Cortes, he portrayed the conquistador in the most negative light. Describing Cortes and his men as evil, Las Casias summarized the conquest by stating that it would be impractical to compile a complete record of all the atrocities, foul murders, and other barbarities they committed and any such account would be so lengthy it would prove impossible for the reader to take in. His calls for reform were influential in the new laws of 1542, aimed at protecting the Indians, and Philip II's ordinances concerning new discoveries of 1573, where the term conquest officially was to be replaced with pacification. Like many of our planet's authoritarians, Hernán Cortés blamed others for his shortcomings. 
regularly whining in his letters about the ghost of Velasquez, whom he blamed for sabotaging the state building that he claimed to have been wholly dedicated to. Despite the negative press, he did achieve a number of victories in his efforts to govern. Laudame informs us that he settled new towns, not only around Lake Texacoco, but also along the east coast and the route inland. He sent expeditions westward and founded towns on the Pacific coast as well. He established defensive structures and ordered the construction of arms and munition workshops. He established a transportation network to all areas of Mexico that would serve military, communication, and trade purposes. He developed mining operations and improved existing ones. An imperial economy formed, and ships packed with goods and the royal share consistently arrived on the shores of Spain. Cortes worked with the Franciscans and other orders to convert the Indians to Christianity and established churches and missions across New Spain. He also planned for further exploration to conquer new territories and expand New Spain. In Cortes's analysis of his own work, he was building a utopia of enterprise and Spanish glory. But a prerequisite for each and every accomplishment was the forced mobilization of the indigenous workforce. When word reached the king's ear regarding the virtual enslavement of his newest citizens, he ordered the practice to stop. But Cortes ignored the order. His rule was secure enough for him to write to the king that I obey, but I do not comply. His position wasn't secure enough, however, to ignore the betrayal of Cristobal de Olid, who had been sent by Cortes to expand New Spain's territorial holdings through the subjugation of Honduras. Olid was successful in his conquest, using what he had learned directly from Cortes's prior exploits. The problem came after the conquest was complete, and Olid revealed that he had actually conquered the land of the name of Velázquez, Cortes's arch-nemesis. Hernán wrote to the king of Spain that the act seemed such an ugly business and such a great disservice to your majesty that I can scarcely believe it. On the other hand, knowing the cunning which Diego Velázquez had always practiced against me to harm me and hinder my services, I do believe it. But the governor went further, informing the king that he would personally arrest Velázquez if he could subsequently prove that his nemesis had indeed been behind Olid's treasonous actions. Laudame writes that to threaten the arrest of the governor of Cuba was far beyond Cortez's reach as governor of New Spain. After the letter reached the eyes of the king, Charles was forced to launch an investigation into whether or not Cortez remained fit for the job. Alas, the lack of email meant that the orders had to traverse the Atlantic Ocean, meaning that one was always three to six months behind on the news at this point in history. Cortes, seething with pent-up rage, had chosen to not wait on the king's response, 
personally leading a hasty expedition to Honduras. There are a number of differing opinions regarding the decision, which turned out to be the worst of Cortez's life. Historian Diaz del Castillo takes the heroic stance, claiming that Hernan Cortez loathed sending someone else into a dangerous situation. Elliot Simpson, another historian, believes that Hernan realized that he was in trouble with his liege and had chosen to believe that it would be better to beg for forgiveness rather than seeking out permission. Still, Madriaga claims in his biography of the Conquistador that Hernan merely had a longing for adventure and hoped to put one more feather in his cap. Whatever the reason, Cortes departed Mexico in 1524, traversing 1,500 miles of dense Central American jungle. Ober lectures that, if the conception of this expedition might be termed foolish, the manner of its equipment was certainly so. It would seem that he took with him nearly all the useless and superfluous persons in Mexico, for besides his fighting force of 250 soldiers and 3,000 Indians, he included a steward and a butler, a chamberlain, grooms, jugglers, falconers, puppet players, priests, a confectioner, pages of the household, and armor bearers. He also carried with him his valuable service of gold and silver and a keeper of the plate to care for it. While there were musicians, gestures, and stage dancers to drive away his melancholy, of the motley clue, only the plate bearers and their precious cargo survived the 20 month journey, and it's a good thing that they had, as Cortez sent the gold and silver that he had brought with him off to the King of Spain in order to prove that Honduras was indeed wealthy and therefore worth the trouble. He needlessly brought with him the fallen emperor of the Aztecs on the grueling journey, only to execute him after a plot was revealed to convince the indigenous members of the expedition to overthrow the Spaniards, whose numbers were now in steep decline. Although it has been estimated that Cortez's small forces had killed more than 100,000 in battle, this individual death haunted the conquistador's dreams, to the point that it led to an actual injury. Ober writes, For many nights afterwards he could not sleep, but wandered about as one distraught. In one of these nocturnal ramblings he fell over the parapet of a ruined temple, and received severe injuries, which he tried to conceal from his men, well aware that they knew his conscience was torturing him, but too proud to admit the fact. The Mexicans might now have mutinied, even without their king and leader, but the wretches were so exhausted by the famine, sickness, and fatigue that they thought only of keeping their souls within their bodies. It seems as though the jungle was about to claim the life of Hernan Cortes in the same way that it had already swallowed the ancient civilization which had built the hidden temple which he had tripped over. Ober also describes for us the expedition's arrival to Honduras, noting that as the soldiers descended towards the Gulf of Honduras, they were drenched by the floods of the rainy season 
which fell day and night and caused the rivers to increase in volume so that several men and horses were drowned in crossing them. They scaled precipices, crossed great plains beneath the blaze of a torrid sun, and at one time were twelve days in passing over a mountain of flints, the sharp stone of which cut their horses' hooves to pieces. All of Cortez's suffering was for naught, after he discovered that the offending Spaniard, Olid, had already had his head taken off by Cortez loyalists embedded within the original expedition. Not wanting to immediately trek back through the deadly jungle, Hernan reached back to his old conquistador days and set in motion a number of new conquests. On his own assigned task, the governor suffered a close call with his own mortality as an arrow grazed his cheek. The incident suggests that Hernan suffered from the gallery touch, which describes ship captains who weren't particularly gifted in the art of delegation. One particular task that no one desired was checking the bottom of the outside hull of a ship for signs of breaking. For that job, a sailor was tied to a rope and lowered beneath the waves to feel their way around the bottom of the vessel. Drownings, hypothermia, and sharks were just a few of the dangers encountered. Captains that suffered from the gallery touch personally risked their own safety to perform the tedious task. I first came across the term in my research regarding Richard the Lionheart, whose own gallery touch resulted in him also receiving a flesh wound, courtesy of a wayward arrow. In the Lionheart's instance, the wound proved to be fatal. It didn't take long for Cortes to realize that Honduras wouldn't produce a second wave of glory. The entire expedition had been a gigantic waste of time, one that would cost him dearly. Spotting a European vessel off of the coast, Cortes went aboard to catch up on the day's news. We've all heard the phrase that no news is good news. Unfortunately for Cortes, there were quite a bit of updates available to him. First, it was being universally reported that he had died while exploring Central America. Secondly, his political enemies had managed to outmaneuver his allies in Spain, resulting in the empowerment of Velazquez's henchmen throughout New Spain. Third, Mexico was on the verge of tipping into a state of anarchy. Ober informs us that when he had left the capital, Cortes had placed in charge two deputies, Estrada and Albornoz, but two other persons who had only accompanied the governor a short distance on the expedition had wheedled themselves into his confidence and obtained power to supersede the deputies. Two parties were formed, civil war had resulted, there was bloodshed in the streets of the capital, the Indians of three provinces had revolted and defeated the forces sent to subdue them. Called back into action, Hernan desperately set sail for his capital city on April 25, 1526. By the time that he arrived four months later, he had been absent from his seat of power for nearly two years. Ober informs us that when Cortes landed in Mexico, he was a mere wreck of his former self, worn and haggard and so changed that no one knew him. 
His face was wan, his form emaciated, but his deep voice still retained the magic of its tones. And when the people heard it, they recognized him instantly. As word of his arrival spread, the conspirators' support dried up, and soon the offending men were safely behind bars. The conquistador turned governor general had less luck with the royal commissioner who had been dispatched from Spain to check on the colony's well-being. Luis Ponce de Leon mysteriously succumbed to a foodborne illness after consuming a couple of cheesecakes in celebration of the opening of an official inquiry into Cortez's affairs. Leon's successor assumed that Cortez had had the man poisoned. The resulting investigation led to the expulsion of the conqueror of Tenochtitlan from his own colony. He returned to Spain with the intent of clearing his name. Failure to do so could mean that he would face the headsman block for the charge of killing one Spaniard. As you would likely expect, there was never a royal inquiry to question the deaths of more than 100,000 indigenous peoples of the Americas. He arrived back in Spain in December of 1527 and immediately set about putting on a show to win over the crowd, presenting to those assembled a vast quantity of gems, gold, and feathers. He even produced the son of Montezuma. Charles, the sovereign of Spain, was among Cortez's legions of fans, quickly pulling Cortez off the ground when the former governor general got down on his knees in a show of begging for the king's forgiveness. The two men became fast friends, despite having previously only conversed via letters. Cortez shared his thoughts on how best to govern the burgeoning colony, and soon the title of Marquis of the Valley of Mexico was bestowed upon him, carving out a vast domain in the territory which included 20 towns and thousands of native vassals. But it wasn't the viceroy's ship that the deposed governor wanted. Still hoping to outmaneuver his detractors via politics, Cortez married into one of the most ancient families of Spain by taking Juana de Zuglia as his bride-to-be. He was 45, and she was considerably younger, young enough, in fact, that the coupling produced four children. The wedding was such a lavish affair that Queen Isabella was said to have been so jealous of the wealth displayed at the ceremony that she prohibited Cortez's return to the city, which was now being referred to as Mexico City. The newlyweds returned to New Spain in 1530. There was no need to scrape out an existence from his new territory, as the viceroyship had come with an annual salary of 100000 to help alleviate the new marquis's expenses. Ober waxes poetic, about this last chapter in his countryman's life, stating that the smiling valleys sloping to the south attracted Cortez to the spot upon which he built his palace. The former conqueror, who, after shaking the dust of the capital from his feet, established himself here and re-engaged in agriculture with an ardor only surpassed by that with which he had formerly pursued the Aztecs. 
The fact that Cortez chose this bit of earthly paradise as a retreat for his old age indicates that, after all, he loved the beautiful in nature. This period of his life reminds us of the peaceful and quiet existence led by him in Cuba with his first wife, Donna Catalina, before ambition robbed him of his rest. He had achieved fame and wealth, and now, apparently content, he devoted himself to agriculture, the noblest of professions. He introduced merino sheep into Mexico and was the first to bring the sugarcane into that country. But a man of action can find it hard to sleepwalk through old age, and he thus financed two ships to explore Southern California. Proving that a fool and his money are soon parted, he raised an army to recover one of those ships after it had run aground. The expedition resulted in the first Spanish colonizers crossing the Rio Grande to establish rule over America's Golden State. The first shipment of settlers included 400 colonists, along with their collection of 300 slaves. The exploration proved costly, resulting in nothing but mounting debts and a sea being named after Hernan. In 1538, the former conquistador took the extraordinary step of writing to the president of the Royal Council of the Indies to proclaim that, I have enough to do to maintain myself in a village, where I have my wife, without daring to reside in the capital city or come to it, as I have not the means to live in it. And if sometimes I come because I cannot afford doing so and remain in it a month, I am obliged to fast for a year. But as he had with Montezuma's loot, Cortez was playing a shell game. While his accounts had run red, he retained copious amounts of wealth hidden within jewels that he lavishly wore. Likewise, his control of the America's pearl industry, as well as his extensive collection of farms, kept him well above the poverty line. Still, it wasn't the life that he believed he was entitled to. He returned to Spain in 1540 in order to lobby the king to once again elevate his position. But the timing was off, as Charles was vacationing abroad. Hernan was forced to wait for him for the better part of the next seven years. While he was away, his wife and eight-year-old heir saw to their Mexican estates. Cortez expected his prior chummy relationship with King Charles to return, but in Aubert's words, this king was a different Charles from the one who had seated Cortez at his right hand in public and had called upon him at his lodgings when ill. He was the same sovereign, but Cortez had no longer anything to offer. He had run his career, was old and useless, and moreover, it was Peru now and not Mexico that sent the gold-laden galleons to Spain. Ironically, Cortez's legacy had resulted in his irrelevance. Francisco Pizarro took Hernán Cortés's playbook and applied it against the Incan Empire, the last great civilization to be encountered by the Spanish conquistadors of this era. 
Pizarro landed in South America in 1531 with a measly 180 men and 30 horses. By the end of 1532, his men fully controlled the Andes Mountains. Although the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword, had not yet been written, the Spanish command of writing proved to be the difference maker in Pizarro's conquest. Historian Jared Diamond writes that Spain possessed writing, while the Incan Empire did not. Information could be spread far more widely, more accurately, and in more detail by writing than it could be transmitted by mouth. That information, coming back to Spain from Columbus's voyages and from Cortez's conquest of Mexico, sent Spaniards pouring into the New World. Atalalpa, the Incan emperor, had very little information about the Spaniards, their military power, or their intent. He derived that scant information by word of mouth, mainly from an envoy who had visited Pizarro's force for two days while it was en route inland from their coast. That envoy saw the Spaniards at their most disorganized, told Adelajalpa that they were not fighting men and that he could tie them up all if just given 200 Indians. Understandably, it never occurred to Adelajalpa that the Spaniards were formidable and would attack him without provocation. While Pizarro himself happened to be illiterate, he belonged to a literate tradition. From books, the Spaniards knew of many contemporary civilizations remote from Europe and about several thousand years of European history. Pizarro explicitly modeled his ambush of Adelajalpa on the successful strategy of Cortes, one that had been written down for him. Pizarro's conquest is a remarkable feat that far surpassed the infamous deeds of Hernán Cortés. That the conqueror of Mexico had to live to see his lofty shadow eclipsed was just desserts for the detractors of Cortés. Diamond goes into great detail regarding the decisive encounter between Pizarro and Adelajalpa at the city of Cajamarca. The professor weaves together the first-hand written accounts of six of the company's Spaniards to describe the fear that threatened to overwhelm the conquistadors as the campfires of the Incas were so close to each other that it looked like the sky brightly studded with stars. That night, all of the Spaniards slept in their armor, uncomforted by their commander's lies which reduced the enemy forces from 80,000 to a mere 40,000. In the morning, Pizarro invited the emperor to arrive, promising him that he would be received as a friend and brother. Having dispatched the invitation, the conqueror immediately planned an ambush, dispersing his cavalry, trumpet men, rifles, and artillery. They patiently waited out of sight, with only a few of the six riders admitting that they urinated themselves in fear while the Indians filed out in single file towards the lying ambush. Diamond tells us that in front of Adelajalpa went 2,000 Indians who swept the road ahead of him, and these were followed by the warriors, half of whom were marching in the fields on one side of him and half on the other side. They advanced, removing the straws from the ground and sweeping the road. 
Next came the squadrons in different dresses, dancing and singing. Then came a number of men with armor, large metal plates, and crowns of gold and silver. So great was the amount of furniture of gold and silver which they bore that it was a marvel to observe how the sun glinted upon it. Their lack of written communication ensured that they had no idea that parading gold in front of the invaders would only increase their eagerness to kill. Much in the same way that Montezuma's continuous gifts of gold only drove Cortez deeper into his territory. Once the procession had become trapped within the small walls of Cajamarca, the Spaniards sent out their friar to offer up their lone gift to the great Incan emperor, a Bible written in Spanish. Atalajalpa didn't even know how to open the text at first. But upon finally cracking it open, he angrily tossed it to the ground, wholly unimpressed with the letters he couldn't read. That allowed the friar to yell that the Spaniards would be absolved of any crime that they were about to commit against the heathens who had just rejected their god. The governor gave the signal to his subordinate, who began to fire off the guns. At the same time, the trumpets were sounded, and the armored Spanish troops, both cavalry and infantry, sallied forth out of their hiding places straight into the mass of unarmed Indians crowding the square, giving the Spanish battle cry, Santiago. They had placed rattles on the horses to terrify the Indians, the booming of the guns, the blowing of the trumpets, and the rattles on the horses threw the Indians into panicked confusion. The Spaniards fell upon them and began to cut them to pieces. The Indians were so filled with fear that they climbed on top of one another, formed mounds, and suffocated each other. Since they were unarmed, they were attacked without danger to any European. The cavalry rode them down, killing and wounding, and followed in pursuit. The infantry made such a good assault on those that remained that in a short time most of them were put to the sword. How did we get here? Pizarro knew that the Incas would accept his diplomatic invitation as Montezuma had been forced to honor Cortes. He also knew that the Incan soldiers would likely fight to wound rather than kill and had stationed his men accordingly. Most importantly, Pizarro knew that capturing the ruler of the Incas would grant him full control of the empire in the exact same way that the imprisonment of Montezuma had paved the way for Cortes to conquer Tenochtitlan. Armed with this knowledge, the Spanish rushed the litter of Atalajalpa and mowed down the lords that held it aloft. Pizarro himself rushed in with sword and dagger to pull down the Incan ruler, but others immediately took the places of the dying to keep their lord of lords away from the Spanish demons. It took seven or eight Spaniards on horseback to rush the litter, tossing its desperate resident into the waiting arms of Francisco Pizarro. The Incans were far more centralized than the Aztec Empire had been, and seeing their emperor as a captive immediately cowed all opposition for fear that raising another finger against the Spanish would ultimately result in the death of their ruler. 
One of the Spanish conquistadors was flabbergasted by the sight, noting that during all this, not one Indian raised a weapon against a Spaniard. When the squadrons of Indians who had remained in the plain outside had seen the other Indians fleeing and shouting, most of them too panicked and fled. It was an astonishing sight, for the whole valley of 15 or 20 miles was completely filled with Indians. Night had already fallen. The conquistador continues that our cavalry were continuing to spear Indians in the fields when we heard a trumpet calling for us to reassemble at camp. If night had not come on, few would have been left alive. As it was, six to seven thousand Indians lay dead and many more had their arms cut off and other wounds. What to do with their highly sought-after prisoner? Pizarro again turned to Cortez's playbook, demanding an absurd amount of gold to let him go free. Once the exorbitant sum had been paid off, Pizarro executed the emperor, plunging the rest of the empire into further chaos which Pizarro took advantage of after aligning himself with local tribes who had resented paying tribute to the more powerful Incans. Interestingly enough, the two Spanish conquerors were second cousins and remained joined at the hip for the similarity of their conquests. But the two weren't equals and Pizarro's conquest meant that the sun had set on Hernán Cortés. Ever seeking to reclaim his top spot in the rankings, Cortés took a gig clearing out pirates from the Algiers. But it was a failure, one that nearly led to his own capture. The next time he saw King Charles, Hernán threw himself at the carriage. The king didn't even recognize him, asking his retainers, Who is this man? To which the ever-humble Cortez replied, It is one who has given you more provinces than your ancestors left you cities. His last correspondence with the king came in February of 1544. Cortez laments, I thought that, having labored in my youth, it would so profit me in my old age that I might have ease and rest. For now it is forty years that I have been occupied with little sleep eating ill, and sometimes neither well nor ill, in bearing armor, in placing my person in danger, in spending my estate and my life, all in the service of God, also increasing making broad the patrimony of my king, gaining for him and bringing under his yoke and royal scepter many and very great kingdoms of barbarous nations, all won by my own person and at my own expense." without being assisted in anything. On the contrary, being much hindered by many jealous and envious persons who, like leeches, have been filled to bursting with my blood. In 1547, at the age of 62, Hernán Cortés passed from this earth. Only his 15-year-old son and heir was willing to be by his side at the end. His remains were taken to the land that he had conquered, venerated, and put to rest. They were moved 67 years later amid great fanfare of the people of Mexico, a blended society made up of those who he had conquered 
and those who had followed in his wake. They were moved again in 1794, this time being put on display in a crystal casket. Not everyone was pleased with the man who had brought genocide to Central America, as mobs rushed to desecrate the display in 1823. His bones were rescued from the crowd and moved in secret before arriving in Mexico City's National Pantheon and later the Church of the Immaculate Conception. His bones reside in the city that had made Cortez worthy of such a burial. It was a city that had relied upon human sacrifice, a city that he had leveled in order to pave the way for Catholicism. It seems as though Cortez had the last laugh after all. He had attempted to serve as the author of his own story. Historian Anthony Pagden writes that Cortez was certainly not the first conqueror to have composed a detailed account of his achievements. But none of the other revelations which survive are anything more than perfunctuary, usually disingenuous accounts of services rendered. Cortez's are also disingenuous, but they are never perfunctuary. 168 of Cortez's letters are much longer than other accounts of exploration, and they are written with much more narrative structure. They were not simply lists of events, but intended to be literary works. They were also written as letters to Emperor Charles V. As such, Cortez was hoping not only to reach the highest level of society with his work, but also that it would become the royal or official account. This notion can also be seen in the level of detail with which Cortez recounted his own actions. He recorded the names of everyone involved and everyone he encountered. He gave detailed descriptions of what he saw in Mexico and included the names of every place he visited. Cortez was, in a sense, following the procedure of creating an account of his actions. But these records were much more. Cortez wanted his letters to be the history of the conquest. Along the way, however, he lost control of the narrative, and the truth leaked out. The Federalist attempted to bring Hernán Cortez back into the mainstream in a 2019 article which bears the title Cancel Culture Comes for Hernán Cortez in Mexico. The article makes the argument that 500 years after his conquest, Cortez remains invisible in Mexico City, that he has been canceled. In fact, Mexican President AMLO recently asked Spain for an apology for the crimes against humanity that were committed during the colonization of his homeland. Historians have worked hard to sift through Cortez's words and compare them to his actions. Historian Eludia Guzman was at the forefront of this work. Guzman published an annotated version of Cortez's letters to demonstrate the fiction hidden within the letters on the page. The result was proof that Cortez was a consummate liar and one who enjoyed the destruction of an entire civilization. He attempted to portray his actions in the most positive light that he could, working overtime to elevate Christianity at the expense of a religion that glorified human sacrifice. But that is the part he wanted you to focus on. The part that he wanted you to ignore is that he did so to further his own ambition. 
a conclusion that is now beyond doubt. Perhaps it is time for cancel culture to decide that the bones of the conqueror of the Aztec Empire need to move one final time. For while his conquest record was immaculate, his actions are not that of he who was immaculately conceived. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.